Hello and welcome to Preparing Foster Youth for Adulting, the podcast designed to highlight strategies and resources that help youth in care transition to adulthood successfully. Our guest today is Erin Neesmith. Erin is the founder and executive director of Grow Into Youth Foundation, an organization that works with young people aging out of foster care in Riverview, Florida. Well, welcome, Erin. Thanks so much for joining our podcast series. How are you this morning? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Well, you're very welcome. We're happy to have you and hear about your organization. To get started, could you please share a little bit about yourself and your background and how is it that you became connected with the foster care system? Well, I have been working with at-risk teens for my entire career. And that started in the education system, juvenile justice, and eventually I ended up being a county teacher, but on the site of a foster home, a group home, and I taught kids kindergarten through fifth grade who were too traumatized to go into regular school. It was kind of like a one-room schoolhouse, but what I noticed the years that I was there is that the older kids did not have a lot of support. And the more I learned about what happens to them as they get towards that age of 18, that's when I I started to investigate the different options and ways that I can make an impact with that age and help to guide them as they start out on their own. And when was that that you started this investigation? I would say that, I mean, I think that I've had a calling towards foster children um, my whole life, but finding that path probably started in about 2010, and then it really didn't come to fruition until I started my organization in 2016. Oh, okay. So it's relatively recent. Yes. And what is your organization and what is it that you do? My organization is called Grow Into You Foundation. We provide coaching, mentoring, and uh, extended foster care housing to teens that have aged out of foster care. All right. So coaching, mentoring, and housing, those are the three primary factors that you work on there? Yes. The core of that is the coaching. We have certified professional life coaches, namely just me at this moment in time. And then we also have volunteer mentors who have been trained by our organization so that we have the same approach with our teens. And then we also, a couple years back, it was almost exactly two years ago, we added on the housing because we realized that we can have a better impact and a better influence if we also have some help in creating an environment where they can really put the tools and strategies that they learn in coaching to good use. Right. You did investigation into older youth and the challenges that they face. Why did you choose coaching and mentoring then as your primary focus? What was the connection? Well, I have always been a student of communication. I was an interpersonal communication major in college and I've always had a heart for learning how to best communicate with people that are in lots of different circumstances. And so when I went to coaching school, which I I went to an organization called IPEC, it's the Institute for Professional Excellence in Coaching. 
And a lot of people in that organization, they're using life coaching and executive coaching in the traditional sense where you take these coaching skills and you use them with highly functioning, highly successful clients. Well, because I had worked so long with at-risk youth and kids that have a trauma background, and I also had that education background as well, I felt like I could really take that information that is accessible to people who are already kind of making it, and I could scaffold it and differentiate it to use it for these kids who are struggling. I like to say that everybody, even the most successful people who had a loving home, we all sometimes have a lot of things to get over and our own traumas and our own things that we have to overcome. So how much harder is it to do that if you came from a broken, struggling, and even maybe a home that you were unwanted or you were mistreated? the stuff that you have to get over then is exponential. And so I really wanted to take the coaching route where I could teach communication. And then there are three main things that Grow Into You focuses on with these kids. And that is when when they leave from me, when they leave from a coaching session or just a mentoring session, because it's a hybrid of those two things based on uh, where they're at in life. I want them to either feel like they have been able to shift their perspective. I like to say, I can't change their circumstances, but I can help them change the way they see them. I also like to restore their power and help them understand where they're accidentally giving their power away to others and how they can feel the ability to keep that power and to be empowered to make choices within the confines of whatever situation they're in. And the last is to plant hope. I want them to be able to feel like when they leave from a coaching session or they leave from just any interaction with somebody from Grow Into You, that they leave feeling like they have something to look forward to, there's a plan in place, that they are not alone, that they feel encouraged. And so just that piece of having hope for the future is a really huge thing that we do as well. Well, you're in essence, helping them build their resiliency. Absolutely. Yeah, that's wonderful. Now, for those who may not clearly understand the difference, how would you explain the difference between coaching and mentoring? So coaching is where are you now in life? What is your current situation? And where do you want to be? And coaching is just helping get through those blocks of what might be coming up for you, why you might not be showing up the way you want to show up to the world or to whatever topic is at hand. But then mentoring is really that relationship building piece that we need to start with, with our trauma teens. And what we do with the mentoring is sometimes it's just listening, acknowledging, and validating which is, are all coaching skills, but they come in handy when you are a mentor. And then beyond that, a mentor is more of that, I've been there, I've done that, and I can help guide you as you do it. For instance, if I have applied for college before, I can help you apply to college because I know those steps. That's the mentoring piece. Whereas the 
coaching piece is more, I tell the kids, it's your agenda. I'm not here to tell you what to do because I haven't lived your life. You have. So the coaching piece is you tell me where you want to get to. And as a coach, I'm going to help guide you with strategies and tools to empower you to get there as long as the path we're taking and the path we're coaching towards is healthy and safe. That's a very clear explanation. Thank you. And and I think that the two are thrown around together quite a bit, coaching and mentoring, but the explanation that coaching is really that the strategy and the mapping of their life and mentoring is really focused primarily on the relationship and the empathy. And I would say maybe life skills and the two combined, I can see how that could be a powerful combination. Yeah. I mean, the kids, you know, they're very used to in the system, they're used to therapy, right? And the kids oftentimes want to say, oh, well, I'd rather do coaching than therapy. And I make sure to tell them this is not a replacement for therapy because therapy is the diagnosis and it's the going into the stuck places of your past. A lot of my kids, I don't even know their past, nor do I find it out until through mentorship, they want to share it with me. But I don't need to know the past to be able to do my job as a coach or a mentor. That is the space for therapy. And I always tell them if therapy is needed, I'm going to be honest with them about, you know, if I see that as a need, but also I'm an add on to that, not a replacement. Would you recommend that mentors also get the kind of coaching training that you had so that they can potentially do both when the needs arise? Or do you think it's better to have your folks who have the expertise in coaching and your folks that have the expertise in mentoring and just partner together? That's a great question. For us, I'm the only certified professional coach just solely based on the fact that funding needs and other things that small nonprofits struggle with. There just hasn't been the ability to add uh, certified professional coaches. And namely because I went to one of the more prestigious or rigorous coaching schools, it definitely is something you have to invest in to get the quality and the type of intense training that I got as a coach from IPEC. So I would love to have additional coaches in the future who are fully trained with the entire um, certified professional coach certification, but our mentors are trained with a lesser degree of that same coaching information because I really do believe that it needs to be a hybrid. I think someone needs to be very well-versed in how to have a natural mentoring relationship with our trauma teens. But I also think that having some of those coaching skills, even if it's at a more basic level than getting the full coaching certification, that those coaching skills are needed because a lot of coaching centers around being very objective and very non-judgmental. And without those two pieces, these relationships are very hard to maintain. And frankly, without those two pieces, it's very hard to not experience burnout. I feel like the most valuable thing I got from becoming a coach and and having those skills is to know how to keep myself in a place of detached involvement where I care, but I'm not taking it on as my own so that I can stay in the game and I can support these kids through very, very horrific and trying circumstances. 
do the mentors know the coaching plans? Because I would think you'd have to have some communication with the mentors so that they know what the kids are planning and trying to achieve for their future and then work and support that. Absolutely. So I serve as the coach for all of our kids. And then our mentors come alongside me to have these one-on-one relationships that are just more of a place not to do a lot of the emotional work, but they're there to maybe help with some of the things that the kids need to do that are more practical and more focused. So while I might be coaching a kid on all these things in their life and the blocks that are coming up emotionally, they might be just working with that kid one-on-one to study for their driver's license, or they might be working with that kid to investigate finding new apartments. Because those little details of what we've talked about in coaching and now they have some action steps, they really need someone to still walk alongside them with that. But I can't do all of those very lengthy steps with every kid. So the way that it currently works in our model is that they get coaching from me and then they have this mentor that can walk them through those more specific steps on a particular goal. And in the process of that, our mentors build these really beautiful relationships that the kids come back to. I like to say that we're building that village around them where they're not just calling me anymore they're calling other people that they now have developed relationships with in the community who are becoming a part of their village. And that's really cool to see. I love when a kid calls their mentor and not me. (laughs) And a relationship with a supportive adult is one of the key factors in success for youth who are aging out of foster care. So how do you see that relationship building impacting the youth that you've worked with? Oh, these kids First of all, they're the most grateful people that I've ever met and the relationships that they have built, the value that they see in those relationships. I think that I never imagined how impactful it would be to watch them value the relationships because it's transformative. I think a lot of times foster care, especially on the flip side of foster care when they're aged out, can feel very transactional. What is it you have to do to get this or that? But the relationships become truly transformative where these kids are changed. And what I like to say is they're left better because of the relationships that they have formed. Yeah, absolutely. I imagine we might have some people listening who are thinking, well, I could do that. I could, I could coach young people. I could get the certification. I could get started because some people wonder, well, how can I help? And maybe this could be a way. So how is it that you got started? I'm thinking the first youth, how did you find that youth, connect with that youth to get your organization off the ground? Well, it was networking, right? That's how we all do almost anything professionally. I had a relationship with another organization called Heart Gallery of Tampa Bay, and they are really an organization that when kids are very close to aging out and they're in need of an adoptive home, they have permission from the kid in the system to put their information out there for the world to see, essentially advertising like this kid is looking for a forever home. Well, when they know that those kids are maybe not going to be ending up in that situation, they tend to come to me and say, look, we know this kid is close to 18 
it's not looking like an adoption is on the horizon, we would like them to have a connection with someone that can support them through this transition. So my very first kid back in 2015, that is exactly what happened. Somebody got a hold of me, a connection I had through working in a group home and working in different foster initiatives around town. And she said, hey, look, I've got this kid. He's 17 years old, was taken out of his home for the first time and is just really in a tough place. And then it just started with that one kid. What's really cool is that in my coaching classes, we had to do this visioning exercise and what is your first client look like and who are they and, you know, demographics. And then what do you see yourself doing with them and what do they feel and what are they thinking when they walk out of their first coaching session? And within a year with that young man, all those things that I had dreamed up in this visioning session that I would be working with a kid who's aged out of foster care, that's just applied for college for the first time, coming from a home where nobody went to college and just has a smile on their face because they're doing it, they're making it. And that very same thing happened with my first client. And so I was hooked. This kid was very emotionally neglected and I just saw him come out of his shell and flourish in this mentoring coaching relationship that we had. And today he's very successful, independent, has his own apartment, car, very successful in his work. And then from there, it's just been a pleasure to see how that's evolved. But I would say that first step is just following the breadcrumbs. I just kind of look at what is the next step. From mentoring that kid before my nonprofit was even fully formed. And then the next kid that came up going to group homes and saying, Hey, can I pilot this coaching and mentoring thing in your group home? And ended up in that group home for four years. And some of those boys I met on my very first day in that group home ended up now living in the extended foster care home that I currently have. So just following the breadcrumbs and seeing what I can be faithful in serving, who I can be faithful in serving and just doing it until it evolves into the next step. Mm -hmm. So how many youth do you work with, let's say in a year's time? And what's the age range that you work with? And I realize you're a new organization, relatively new and that you're still growing, but where does it stand right now? So Over the years, it's evolved here and there. Like I said, I started that first year piloting coaching and mentoring in group homes where kids were underage. And then those kids, eventually, a lot of them have aged out of the foster care system. And I still am working with those kids today. I'm just now to the point where we'll be five years old in February. And we're just getting to the point where we're seeing our first kids grow out of Grow Into You. So it's been cool to see that process of these kids getting older and seeing the long game of our work. But I have kids that are referred to me that are, I mean, I've worked with as young as 11 in the system, because really 11 to 17 is where they end up in these group homes and their families are very hesitant because of misinformation to take in the teens, 11 to 17. So I started more heavily working with that population. But As those kids aged out, I now primarily work with the aged out kids. And then 15 to 17, I would say, is the age where I start to get to know some of the kids as they're aging out. 
But my primary kids are 18 to 23 because 23 is that age where they stop receiving the funding from the state. So Grow Into You is just following that same guideline that hopefully we can have them fully independent by that age 23 and on their own. The 18 to 23 age group is where we focus the most. And I would say in a year, I probably have, it's hard to say because, you know, some kids I get involved with and it might be one awesome conversation and then they end up moving to another group home or another extended foster care home and and maybe we lose touch or something. But I would say I probably touch base with or have meaningful interactions with probably 100 kids a year. But as far as the ones that are intensely pursuing coaching and mentoring, and I say pursuing because with the 18 to 23 age, I give them the responsibility to initiate the coaching. I tell them if you're doing it because somebody's running after you, then that may not be as effective as if you are the one asking for the help. You know, I hold their hand a little bit at the beginning, but eventually I I let them come to me to initiate the support and they'll get all the support they want if they come and initiate for that. So um, I would say I'm working intensely with about 20 kids at a time. And then there are others who check in or, you know, they come to get some coaching and support as needed. Right. And how many mentors do you have to help these young people? And are all your youth connected to mentors? Up until very recently, just this last weekend, we had a training for a good amount of mentors from a church that is very excited to get involved. But prior to that, we only had about eight to 10 mentors that were really pursuing, again, initiating on their own being a part of some kids' lives. And most of that has happened around our houses. So that is very telling to us because it gives people a tangible understanding of who these kids are and where they're from. And so we have like a mentor couple for that house. My family serves as the anchor family. We have four boys in our first home, Oak House. And those boys each have had a mentor that's a one-on-one mentor for them. Now, down the road, I would love for every kid that we serve to have a dedicated mentor, but the ones that I serve that are all around our county, and it's a big county, not all of them have a dedicated mentor just because logistics and things, they're kind of all over the place. So we have seen that the mentor um, model works really great when we have this house where we, again, are being able to provide an environment and then our mentors are able to get connected to kids through that environment. Okay, great. Well, let's talk a little bit more about the whole house situation that you have there, the transitional living. Yeah. And how did that get started? You said already that you saw that there was a need to provide the housing, but did you raise money and buy a home after you made that decision? How did that come together, I guess, as I'm wondering? Well, as you have probably gathered, we're a very small, obscure little organization. And so it was really cool. My dad owns the home that is now Oak House. And he had used that home for his office for over a decade. 
And when he was retiring and moving to the other coast, I said, hey, dad, can I please have that house (laughs) so I can turn it into an extended foster care home? And that's exactly what we did. He transitioned to, you know, we have a lease and he was very generous with the first couple of years as far as while we renovated, he kind of covered that cost as his donation. But we do rent that house from him. And he's just kind of the silent partner in the landlordship. And I fully run the house, anything from repairs all the way to coaching and supporting the boys. We have four boys who live there that have aged out of foster care. And we like to say that that situation is not like a group home. It's like four college roommates living together because our home does not have an older adult who lives there with them to oversee them. They just live together as roommates and we have house meetings together. We have, like I said, a lot of support from mentors and community members who provide anything from food to we have cleaning days where we come in there and we teach them different aspects of cleaning. But we don't have cameras out there. We don't have alarm systems. We don't have all of those things that make it feel more like a facility. We don't have those things because... We wanted the boys to feel like this is their home. That being said, to renovate, we took an older home and we had to add a bathroom. We had to add an extra room. And so it was a year of renovations that were done solely on donations as they appeared. And there was an amazing organization down here, Chadwell Construction, that gave us like from light fixtures all the way to appliances. They donated a ton to help us get that house in order. We had an amazing friend of mine from church who was a general contractor and oversaw the whole project for the whole year on his off time. And we gutted that place. We renovated it floor to ceiling and we put brand new furniture in. I'm very picky about what kind of environment they're given because most of the environments I have experienced outside of our home, I would call dwellings. We're talking about places in bad areas with not a lot of access to transportation or jobs that are I'm just going to say some concrete floors and some rat infestations and some shootings and black mold. I mean, these are the kinds of circumstances I have seen for kids that have aged out of foster care. And it's because there are no regulations for this population's housing. Whereas, you know, you see regulations for things like Section 8, but you don't see it in this area. It makes it super easy for someone to go ahead and step in and start a home. But unfortunately, if that home is not kept up by the people that are serving these kids, they can be in some dire circumstances. So we have made sure our homes are constantly, we have maintenance people that come in and help to fix things. We're teaching those boys how to take care of their own home. And we tell them, it's not because we want you to take care of the home we're providing. You don't owe that to us. We want to teach you how to do it so that when you own your own home, you have those skills. Mm -hmm. And then our furniture, we had custom made furniture by local carpenters. We obviously raised some money to get furniture in there and made it modern and homey, not stark and impersonal, not hand-me-downs that were beat up. We wanted them to feel like 
we value them enough to give them something to be proud of. Wow, that's fantastic. I was going to ask you about the whole renovation and if you had to meet certain minimum standards from the state, like say the kitchen, I know you are supposed to have stainless steel in kitchens if you're serving people. None of that's in place for this kind of housing? Nope. Wow. It's filling out a couple pieces of paper, turning it into the contracted agency overseeing the aged out independent living services and making sure that there's some lights on and some water. And that's kind of it. So it's crazy what, you know, what I have seen in some homes. That's not to say that the system isn't trying continuously to find people willing to offer more quality housing. But as we know with foster care in general, it's a crisis and there's not a lot of people out there willing to enter the space. I call it the black hole of society. So we're just trying to be sort of the standard of what an aged out home should look like. And what's really cool is Oak House with our boys has been open almost for exactly two years. We opened on the last day or the last couple of days of 2018, right up into the Christmas holidays, we were renovating and getting that house ready. And now almost exactly two years later, we are partnering with another organization that is buying a second home. And we'll be closing almost exactly two years to the day that we opened our first home. We'll be closing on that house and opening it very shortly so that we can house four girls who have aged out of foster care. Oh, let's give a shout out to that organization. Which organization is it that's working with you on that? That organization is called OFIDA. Obviously, my girls have for a long time said, when is our house coming? And so and we have some girls in crisis right now, some girls who are about to age out of foster care who don't know where they're going, some girls who have uh, become homeless, whether that's because they were adopted and then the adopted family, once they were 18, kind of bowed out. You know, I, unfortunately, I see that happen a lot. And those kids are left even without the services of the state, which is really sad. I work outside of the system. And so I don't necessarily go to the system for everything. Some of my kids are working with the system to do the qualifying activities to get the funding that the state provides. And some of them are coming to me word of mouth from their friends that they've known in foster care. And they come to me and say, hey, I'm in a tough spot. I need some help. I don't really have to go to the system because the kids come to me. I get calls all the time and it's just kids referring other kids. Yeah. Well, that says a lot when the youth are wanting to participate in your program. Yeah. Our girls' home will be full pretty much as soon as it opens. It's in better condition than our boys' home was initially. So we'll be able to do renovations probably as they're living there because it's already in good living condition. And and then we'll move the girls in because frankly, in their situations, we can't wait to renovate. We've got to put them in so they have a safe place now. Now, what is your perspective on where some improvements can take place in the system to help these young people get ready to transition from foster care to living on their own? I'm very big on the training of anybody who's dealing with foster and trauma teens because the way that we speak to them The way that we treat them, it's the hugest part of whether the relationship building is going to happen or not. You know, when kids feel shamed or they feel minimized or sort of put off, then that is a huge barrier to our kids getting the help that they need 
So I think training is the first step. I think we need to have trauma-informed case managers. We need to have trauma-sensitive and trauma-aware people from like throughout all stakeholders of the process. Unfortunately, some of my kids have had to have shelter on the flip side of 18, and I didn't have that girl's home. Placing is not part of my job description, but I'm not going to ignore a kid who I know is sleeping on the streets. And so I've had to get creative with friends and family who I've known for years. But at the same time, those people definitely still need to have the training and the education of how to treat that kid. And it's going to look different. It's, you know, they've had 18 years of survival mode and they're not going to just snap to it in, in a house with someone who has parented kids from a whole different situation. So I think across the board, whether it's someone housing kids, it's someone working with them as a case manager, it's, you know, whatever the situation may be, I think that training is the biggest piece so that the approach to the kids is dignified and is acknowledging and validating their pain and their struggle before we try to push them on to do the next thing. Second, I would say I think that the qualifying activities that they have to do to get support from the state on 18 to 23, I think that it's a noble effort. And of course, the things that they ask them to do with chafee dollars and things are things that, of course, we want to see the kids do, like go to post-secondary college. But a lot of these kids, they have grown up in a lot of struggle, especially around schooling. And they are very scared when they turn 18 and they don't have necessarily the ability to enter college right away because of all of the trauma and the stuff they're dealing with. So unfortunately, I think there needs to be some work done at a a legislative level to provide more opportunities for these kids to be scaffolded, to have the opportunity to work their way towards being in that place of being able to be successful in school because a lot of them are missing a lot of the steps to get there and be successful right away. So unfortunately, it's like a dangling carrot that gets pulled from them. Hey, if you stay in school, we'll give you this money, but they're not equipped to do that schooling. And so I think it causes a lot of pain and a lot of shame for these kids when they need that money to survive because they have no one. But at the same time, They have not been raised in a way that makes them successful at getting that money. So I think there's a lot that needs to be done to think outside of the box and give these kids a lot more options of what counts as a successful qualifying activity. It may need to be prep for a lot of these things, not just being successful at it out of the gate. Yeah. And what might be a few things that a young person might need prep-wise? Of course, the first one I think of is just simply basic education gaps that might have happened because the young person was struggling in school because they were in foster care because of their family situation that you might need to shore up just the the basic educational gaps. But what other types of things might a young person need help with to get ready to go into school successfully? I would say resourcefulness because so many of us we remember when we were 18 and when we entered college and, you know, that first semester is really challenging, 
just knowing who to go to and who to ask and how to talk to your teacher to get what you need, to get the help you need. When you are struggling, knowing to follow those breadcrumbs to ask around until you find the tutoring center or whatever the case may be, the resourcefulness and the the soft skills that kids need and how to communicate with adults or people in authority, how to navigate a system like a community college system. Those are some of the things that over time our kids get when they're doing coaching and mentoring. But if they're not connected with people to have conversations and to learn those things along the way, then I think that they're just out there trying to use their old ways, their survival ways, their street ways, and that's not working very well in those systems, right? So it might be really wise for a system of care on the aged outside to say, hey, if you're engaging in a consistent mentoring or coaching relationship, that counts for something. It counts for us to continue to pay for your housing while you head towards whatever that might be as far as schooling. I would say giving them some time when they first when they first turn 18, even if they're still working on a GED, I think that giving them a program that's very rich in helping them know what they want to do in the future. Because a lot of these kids, they're so scared, they just pick something to do in college, and they don't really want to do it. They just want to get the money, because they don't know how they're going to live without it. So they go through a semester of doing something they're not even interested in, which they eventually flunk out of. And it's just almost like putting this Band-Aid on something until it's a crisis again. So I think having a really rich program where they can investigate who in the world am I and what do I want to do in my life is huge. I think that could be something that, you know, if they're participating in a career building model, that that could qualify for them to continue to get their housing, you know, that kind of thing. So like I said, just thinking outside of the box and looking at these kids and who they really are and where they really are and providing opportunities that they don't have to be scared or they don't have to be pressured to make a decision that's not best for them, all in the name of that's how the system goes. Right. I think in addition to that, or maybe this might be one way to go about solving that, is to support programs within universities and VOTEC programs that are designed to support foster youth. I, I know California is really big on that. Their state colleges, universities have programs. Virginia's community colleges I would say most, if not all of them, have programs specifically designed to do what you're describing, which is support foster youth before they start school and then throughout their whole schooling experience. I see that there are more and more of those, but there are so many states where there's just this huge gap and you just don't find any colleges or universities that have that kind of program. And I also think VOTEC programs, I think that would be also extremely helpful to have somebody who knows the challenges that these young people are going through and what might be needed to help get them across the bridge to be successful. Absolutely, because the kids who have had that bridge with us, even though that's not the primary thing that we do as far as the education piece, but the kids that we have walked over that bridge with, those kids are doing well. You know, it's not that they can't do well. 
It's just that they need the right support to get there. Mm -hmm. I'm sure that those places where they have a more intense program to serve more kids in that way, I'm sure that success level is probably fantastic. And yeah, I would love to see more of those kinds of things in our state as well. Yep, exactly. Well, let me ask one final question. And I've been asking just because we're in the midst of this pandemic is how has COVID-19 impacted your organization? Have you had to go virtual for your coaching, for example? And how are the young men faring in your house, Oak House? I would say overall, it was not detrimental. Of course, in the financial sense of being able to fundraise and stuff, that got weird, right? (laughs) Because people aren't trying to take care of their own families. But I will say we've been very blessed and, and money It comes how it comes. And I just trust that it's going to get there when we need it to support kids. But besides that, when we look at the kids, I would say Oak House has done pretty well. Those boys are so successful already. If anything, it was like a little pause at the very beginning of the pandemic when we were all really isolated and everybody was really trying to hunker down. I would go over once a week and we'd have board game night. We would order some food and have it dropped off at the door and then we would just hang out and we played Monopoly and we played you know all kinds of board games and I think we would make TikToks <laughs> and it gave us really like a great bonding time. I think that that's what a lot of us are uh, you know in retrospect looking back at this past year are really thankful for the slowdown that it gave us in some ways. And so I saw that. I also saw that with a lot of my teens at large, yes, we had to do some virtual. I'll be honest, I still got out there to see my kids because they're my kids. <laughs> and I'm going to see my own children. I'm, of course, going to go see them too because they're the same to me. You know, We did change some things and do some things virtually, which I actually think was cool because it gave me the opportunity to see that some of them can be successful in that model, in the virtual model which I kind of shied away from prior to the pandemic because I just really felt like face-to-face was the name of the game. And to see that I can give them support in the interim when maybe I'm not going to see them for a while in the virtual model has been refreshing. We also got creative and starting in June to October, I put out there basically for our kids to work towards a trip where we would get a cabin and go up in the winter to Gatlinburg and just have like a traditional family vacation. And but the kids to go on this vacation had to do some qualifying things. So they saved money. They had to have a lot of stability in a lot of places in their life. And they also had to do some personal development and classes that we offered on Zoom as well as do some service projects. So we got out in our little bubble, but we made homeless bags to pass out around town for the people who are struggling even worse. We went to do Feeding Tampa Bay and do food distribution at this massive mega pantry. We did personal development on Zoom where we had professionals and people who had words of wisdom to offer to our kids. And we've done these little personal development classes where they just get on Zoom and they hear from somebody. And those are things that now I think the pandemics, weirdly enough, gave us the opportunity to try. And now those will probably be staples forevermore because the kids loved them. 
But I will say on the challenging side, I would say school was the hardest thing for the kids because if you already are struggling in school and you're trying to figure out how to make that work, my kids who were in college and now having to take those classes online and trying to navigate classes with little interaction and little clarification, I think that became very challenging. And I did have some kids who, you know, they were new to community college and here they are trying to do it without ever having stepped on a campus. There just wasn't a lot of context to even know what's going on because it's not like high school, but it's also, you know, not something they've experienced. And so I found that that has been the biggest challenge for our kids during this time is having to do school online. But Grow Into You practices little wins. We're not fixing people. We're not arriving at now they're a perfect person because none of us are. And I know very well-to-do people who make all kinds of messes in their life, but we focus on little wins. So one of the little wins we had is a kid who did his first semester during COVID and failed a class this last semester, got an A and was able to share, it was a speech class and he was terrified the first semester, but he just turned it around, went from failing to an A and was able to start to speak about wanting to become a dependency court judge and what his foster experience has been, which he had never talked to his peers about before. So, you know, we've seen little wins where kids have been, again, resilient in this climate of even some extra challenges put on them. I absolutely give them credit for shining in such a difficult situation that we're all struggling with. Yeah. So that's fantastic. I see that we're at the end of our time and I'm sad because I'm really enjoying our conversation. (laughs) But before we go, if somebody wanted to contact you or even donate to your organization, what's the best way for them to do that? They can go to growintoyoufoundation.org backslash donate. And obviously, if they go to that website, they'll see all kinds of information, videos of the kids. Also on Facebook, that's kind of our micro blog of where we put pictures and updates and events we're having and all kinds of things. Lots of those are virtual, so people can do them from everywhere. I would say those are the two main things, growintoyoufoundation.org and then Foundation on Facebook. Wonderful. Well, thank you for sharing that. And thank you so much for joining me today and explaining your program and your background. I really appreciate the work that you're doing there with the young people in your area. And I just wish you all the best moving forward as you continue to expand your support of these young people so that you can help more and more and more youth. Thank you very much for giving me the opportunity to share what we're doing. And um, I really appreciate what you're doing to bring awareness to these kids and their situations as well. Well, thank you. That's definitely part of what we're trying to achieve here. And also to let people know, one, what are the great resources out there like your program in your area? And to give people ideas for how they might run their own programs. They might get ideas about the coaching from you, about the housing. I really want to tap into all of these organizations around the country to share these ideas so that we all can benefit from it, ultimately, of course, to better help the youth. Yes, for sure. Thank you very much. And for those of you who have listened to the end, thank you for listening to another podcast from Aging Out Institute. We try to put these out every couple of weeks or so. You can find them on our website and you can also find them on podcast distribution programs. They're all out there. You just need to search for Preparing Foster Youth for Adulting. 